All right, religious liberty, Baptist faith and message. Uh, this is the second from the last uh, article that we'll be in, article number 17. To be quite honest, uh, I wasn't too excited when I found out the topic I was talking on tonight. Uh, a few weeks ago, if, if you all remember, Garth, uh, Garth Farmer preached on, on missions, and I talked to him after his, his uh, sermon on missions, and he said something along the lines of, yeah, missions just kind of preaches itself. And I thought, I don't know if this one's going to preach itself. <laughs> uh, but nonetheless, after some studying and after, you know, going to God's word, I'm, I'm pretty excited to t- be talking about this tonight. Uh, and I want to start off by a- answering a simple question. What is religious liberty? <clears throat> and we can kind of break it up into two different words. You've got religion and, and liberty. And religion, we all know, is that set of beliefs that, that we follow. Um, for us as Christians, that's the the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you've got all kinds of other religions out there. You've got Buddhism, Hinduism, Catholicism, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And then liberty, on the other hand, means freedom, freedom from control. So if you combine those two words, religion and liberty, you get the, the freedom to practice a set of beliefs or a freedom to believe whatever religion you want to with or without interruption or interference. And primarily when we say that, we kind of refer to government interference. Um, And where that gets kind of complicated is where when certain religious practices go against the government. And so then the government has to step in and protect those people um, because that that religious command or religious practice is going to affect other people outside of that religion. And so so it gets, it gets pretty complicated, and it goes on and on and on from there. Um, here in the United States, we have the First Amendment, which we're all really familiar with. To be quite honest with you, I didn't even know that the First Amendment was the one about religion. I would have never thought that the First Amendment was about religion, but it is. The very First Amendment in the Bill of Rights says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. It's pretty cool thought to think that our, our founding fathers, the guys who created this country, who were writing the Bill of Rights, thinking about how do we protect our people, the very first thing they said was, we want to protect religion. We want to uh, keep those things separate. And if we look at, our, at the, very, uh, the second sentence of the article that we'll be looking at tonight, the second sentence of this article in the Baptist Faith and Message says that the church and state should be separate. A pretty simple statement. Um, it also goes on to say that the, the, the state does not have the right to impose penalties or taxes for religious beliefs or opinions, and that no denomination should be treated, treated higher than another uh, denomination or belief. And then at the very, uh, and then w- w- when you think of that on a spectrum, what you see here is, is when, it, when, a, when a government does try to do that, when, it, when a government does try to dictate religion or use religion, you kind of end up with two ends of the spectrum. One end of the spectrum is the, rel- the, the government says everybody has to follow this religion, which is not good because you don't want to force people to believe certain things. And then on the other end of that spectrum, you have the government saying you can't practice this religion at all. And we see that all over the world with Christianity, where Christianity is, is literally outlawed in a lot of places. So that's kind of the, the two ends of the spectrum. Uh, and then towards the end of our Baptist faith, the message tonight, it ends up concluding that a free church in a free state is the Christian ideal, uh, which to me, that, that's a pretty cool sentence. A, a free church in a free state is the Christian ideal. And, and basically what that means is that it's better to keep church and state separated 
because then you're not hindering anybody from believing God. They can believe whatever they want, including the gospel of Jesus, and that's, that's, that's what we want. That's the ideal. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I, came, uh, I found myself thinking, well, what came first, the First Amendment or the Baptist faith, the message? And I quickly realized that's not the right question. And the answer to the question that I should have been asking is the word of God is what we go to, first and foremost. And so uh, I'll be going to John chapter 8 if you want to start flipping there. But when it comes to freedom or liberty in the Bible, we can look to the, the very words of our Savior Jesus Christ in John chapter 8 verse 31. John 8 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and, tr and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And, and we can read a passage like that and, and, and kind of chuckle at the confusion of the Jews uh, it's pretty clear that Jesus was not talking about this physical enslavement, but as soon as the word free or the word freedom comes up, they instantly think enslavement. They think shackles. They think bondage. Uh, but it's, it's, it's so clear to us that, that Jesus has something so much bigger in mind. He's talking about physical, or he's talking about spiritual freedom. He's talking about uh, the, 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 the freedom that we receive when we believe in the gospel. And let's be honest, that is the most important thing a person can consider, the state of his very own soul. And so at the onset of this sermon, before I even get into my three points, which you know are coming, uh, I want you to consider your own soul. Have you been set free from the bondage of sin? And are you truly free in Christ? Uh, that's what true freedom looks like. When you put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior, and the shackles of sin are broken, and your relationship with God is rectified. That is the kind of freedom, that's the kind of liberty that Jesus was focused on. And that's the kind of liberty and freedom we need to be focused on as well. And if we look to, to buy at the Bible as our authority, you could easily ask, well, what about this Baptist faith and message? Why did we just spend the last half of a year uh, focused so much on the Baptist faith and message if our authority is the Bible? And to that, I'd say that you should go all the way back to the beginning of this series where Josh Womble gave us an introduction on this and it explained to us why it is important to have a statement of beliefs like this, but simply stated, the Baptist faith and message is a common confessional statement that each individual church adopts for itself. But as Christians, we let God's word guide us and teach us, and that's the goal that I have anytime I teach or anytime that I preach when I'm here, um, is to let, let God's word be the source of that teaching. And so with that being said, I do have three points. Uh, that we're going to look at. And those three points are rooted in Scripture, uh, but induced by the, the Baptist faith and the message. Or you could say that they, they were motivated by the Baptist faith and message, but the source is Scripture. So my first point tonight is that God is above all. And we, we don't have to go any further than the very first verse of the Bible to see that God's authority and power over all things, in the beginning, God created. <clears throat> God created all things, he, he created the heavens, the earth, the animals. He created us. Um, 
And it makes sense to say that he has power and authority over all of those things. If God wanted to, he could decide right now that he wanted to end everything, and he could because he has that power. He was the creator, and he is the creator of all things. And if God is above all, then we can also say that he's above us. And if he's above us, we can also say that he's above our conscience, which is where our Baptist faith says in the very first sentence, it says, God alone is the Lord of our conscience, which quite honestly, is not a very clear sentence. What does that mean, you might ask? Well, it simply means that what a man believes is between his conscience and between God. It's between him and God. John Leland sums it up by saying that religion is a matter between God and individuals. Man must not command other men to believe certain things. Um, And as Christians, we believe that our conscience is governed chiefly and mainly by God and his commands to us. You might, ask, well, might also ask, well, what is a man's conscience? And uh, that, too, is an important part of this discussion, and I want to make sure that we understand that. Uh, a man's conscience is that set of beliefs that he holds to so tightly that it impels his action. From a man's conscience, he determines what is right and what is wrong and how to go about his life in the, the best direction. We all have one, and we are all guided by it. It's kind of like a computer. Um, computer is a pretty cool thing. It does all kinds of things. You can write papers. I typed up my sermon notes on my computer. I can watch movies. I can now create movies on my computer. Like, you can do all kinds of things with your computer, but behind that computer is a hard drive that we don't really think about or don't really consider and we, we don't even really see, and yet without that hard drive, you can't do any of the other things without that hard drive, and so our, our conscience is kind of like that. Uh, our conscience is, is what helps us to decide what we're doing each and every day. It's constantly running in the background um, like like the hard drive of a computer. And I'm no computer with, so Marshall could probably correct me if I'm wrong on that. But y'all get the idea. Um, So yeah, yeah, the the person's conscience is what impels his action and what guides him and and directs him. And it's in all of us. We all have it, and it's always running in the background. So to say that God alone is the Lord of the conscience is to thus say that God knows what is best for me in my life. If I'm going to have anything guide me and direct me in life, I want it to be God. Because we know, especially after spending so much time in the the book of James, that if we were left to our own desires and our own wills, we'd end up a pretty rotten mess. We we can uh, just look at James in the very first chapter where it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you go from your own desire, and you end up at death. That's that's pretty pretty hasty. Uh, pretty hasty. Sl- it's a pretty slippery slope, if you ask me. And then if we were to go to chapter four, uh, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war with you, within you? And so we know that it is our own desires and our own passions within us, at war within us, that cause chaos and trouble all around us. And if we were to to let that guide us, we'd end up a pretty rotten mess. And so with this knowledge, namely that we we don't know what's best for our lives, and we do turn to, to God. We turn to who we know does know what is best for our life, God himself. And 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 fortunate for us, we have God's word through scripture to guide us and to teach us and to, to tell us how to live. And it can, be, it can be summed up basically by saying the best life is the life lived for God. But I want us to turn to Matthew 22 next. 
Um, to th- there's a really good example of this in Matthew 22. A really good example of God being above all. Matthew 22, <clears throat> starting in verse 17. Tell us then what you think. These are some people asking Jesus questions. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But, G- but Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. And so right there we can see uh, this idea of God is above all things. And the first thing I think when I read a passage like that is, man, that's what you get when you try to mess with Jesus. He's just mind blown. You had no idea that that's what he was going to respond, and he does, and you're just like, man, that was good. Uh, But secondly, he's thinking about so many more things that are happening in the background there. Like, they are so focused on Caesar and this coin, and Jesus totally stumps them when he says, give to, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God what is God's. Because you, you ask the simple question, well, what belongs to Caesar? And you can say, oh, this coin. And then you ask the simple question, what belongs to God? And all things belong to God. And you see, the Pharisees were trying to catch Jesus in his words because they were trying to, to set him up so that it would look like he was trying to cause a revolt against the government. And and right there we can see from Jesus' response that he wasn't trying to to cause a revolt against the government, and he doesn't teach his people to go against government. And in fact, Timothy later on writes that we should pay our taxes, fear God, and honor the emperor or honor our leaders. And so that leads me to my second point, uh, because God has given us a good thing. Number two, God uses government. God uses government. And for this, we'll be turning to Romans 13. It's my favorite kind of a Bible study when, you, <clears throat> when you're flipping all over Scripture. Romans chapter 13. Verses 1 through 7. And while you're flipping there, uh, let me give you a few examples of, of how we see God use things we don't expect for our good. We can think back to Genesis and the story of Joseph. You know, the story of Joseph is pretty crazy. His, his brothers sell him into slavery. He ends up in prison. By the end of the story, he ends up like second in command under Pharaoh. And at the very end of that story, the famous, the famous, the famous uh, Bible verse at the very end of Genesis is what you meant for evil, God meant for good. So that we, we take the fact that Joseph was sold into slavery and was in prison, and as terrible as that might sound... What you meant for evil, God meant for good. So God can take a terrible situation like that and use it for his purpose. And and probably the best example of this in all of Christianity is the very death of Jesus. Uh, In the men's Bible study that we're going through in Acts, Acts, in in chapter 2 this past week, uh, we read that this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So probably the worst news you could ever hear the death of the Son of God, you crucified him, 
That was the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was a part of God's amazing plan of salvation that even Judas's betrayal and even Jesus dying on the cross and everything else that is with that, all of that would happen for, for our benefit, that that would be the plan of salvation. So we know that God can use anything for his purpose, including government. And so as we read Romans chapter 13, <clears throat> I want you to pay attention to who is really in charge as we read these verses. The first seven verses. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to, to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? And then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. And so just reading through those verses, you can, you can tell who is in charge. They were servants of God, and they were ministers of God. They, they only had so much authority that was instituted to them by God. And so we know that really, in all of that, God is in control, which goes back to number one, God is above all. Uh, but right here, God uses government. Right from the beginning, it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And so we know that God has given us our government for our benefit. Our, our, our leaders and our authorities are like tools in the hands of God that he uses for our benefit. And so by, by submitting to our leaders, we are also not only submitting to them and obeying them, but we're also obeying God because God has given us those leaders. And that is our ultimate goal if we're talking about all of this is that we submit not only to our leaders and our government, but our ultimate goal is to submit to God and to submit to him and to obey God. And so this is where it kind of, you know, this is where it gets tricky is, well, what if our leaders start to lead us in such a way that is against God? And that's where we draw the line, and that's where we say, well, then that's when we say, I'm ultimately following God, and if you're going to lead me in such a way that does not follow God, that's where we draw the line and say, I'm not going to follow this leader anymore. <clears throat> and that's, that's where we get into our Baptist faith, the message where it says uh, right in the middle, civil government being ordained of God, it is the duty of Christians to render loyal obedience. So right there it says, we render loyal obedience to our government uh, because it is ordained by God. But then there at the end it says, thereto in all things, not contrary to the revealed will of God. So basically what God is saying is follow your leaders as long as they don't tell you to follow me. One of my favorite Bible stories in, in the entire Bible is uh, about those three guys in the Old Testament, friends of Daniel. We all know Daniel, uh, the guy who got thrown into the lion's den. We know that story. But in that same uh, book of the Bible, we have Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. This is my favorite story in, in the Bible, I guess besides the gospel. <clears throat> um, but these, <laughs> these three guys, 
uh, at the same time, King Nebuchadnezzar, you know, we kind of have this same, same thing play out with the story of Daniel, but King Nebuchadnezzar had come up with this new law that whenever these, these trumpets and this music plays, everybody in the city needs to instantly bow down and pay respect or pay honor to this big golden statue of, of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so these three guys, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, the very first time that the music starts to play, they're the only ones standing up, not bowing down, because they know that their ultimate, who they're going to ultimately bow their knee down to and who they're going to submit to is not King Nebuchadnezzar, but rather is God. And so they're not going to bow their knee to him because they're only going to bow their, bow their knee uh, to God. And my very, very favorite part of the whole story is that when they, when they then get, uh, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar is not happy about that, so he brings them up and he's about to throw them into this giant fiery furnace. Uh, even some of his servants get caught on fire and die right there because it's so hot and uh, they get thrown in and they don't die. God protects them. But before any of that happens, my favorite, favorite part of that story is that they say to King uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, that we know that God can save us from this fire, but even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow down to you. We serve God. We do not serve you. Um, that's just total allegiance to God. You could see that their heart was completely for God. They completely followed God, trusted God. And so we, too, bow down uh, to nobody alone but God. <clears throat> And as I thought about this relationship of, of government and church, I was also reminded of another relationship that we talk about a lot more often and we're a lot more comfortable talking about because, you know, things get a little bit heated when you talk about government. Um, but another relationship that this was reminded me of was between a parent and a child. We know that God gives us our parents as a good thing. We submit to and we honor our parents. I mean, it's even one of the Ten Commandments that you honor your parents, and so we know that God uses our parents as tools to protect us, to teach us, to care for us, to guide us. And similarly, but on a much bigger scale, God uses our government for the same thing, to protect us, to teach us, to care for us, and to guide us. And so just like our parents, God uses, it, uses our government for our good and for our <clears throat> benefit. And then my last point tonight is number three, heavenly citizenship. So as we come to a conclusion, we'll be looking at Philippians 3.20. One short verse. Philippians 3.20 says, <clears throat> But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must remind ourselves constantly that our citizenship is not on this earth. Yes, our citizenship is not in this country, it's not in Fairdale, it's not in Kentucky, but yes, we do live in this country, we do live in Kentucky, we do live in Fairdale, and those things are absolutely important. God says that we are to be a light in the world, and so it absolutely matters that we're here in Fairdale, in Kentucky, in this country, but ultimately, Paul writes that our citizenship is in heaven. We, were, we belong somewhere else. This isn't our permanent residence. We, we are heading somewhere else. And to quote my favorite band, Switchfoot, we were meant to live for so much more. <clears throat> and and the, we might be here for 70 or 80 years, which, which is a long time. And if you're strong, that's what the Bible says you might live to is 80 years. But even that, as we read this morning, is just a mist. As, as Josh said, that 
All it takes, when you think of a mist, all it takes is the changing, or the, the changing of the direction of the wind to blow away that smoke, and it's gone. That's how quick and how short our life is. And with this in mind, it forces you to live with conviction. It forces you to think about what really matters in life, and it also makes you think about who else is going to be citizens of heaven. Who are going to be those citizens alongside me when I do get to heaven? So let me close with this. I know we're talking about religious liberty, and when we do talk about that, we think about our circumstances, what, what is going on around us, uh, how often Christians are maybe put down, um, how often Christians aren't really taken seriously maybe in our society. Even in public schools, we start to see more and more and more controversy over Christianity with, with kids talking and praying uh, and talking about God. And, and don't get me wrong, that's awful, but if we were to take a step outside of the United States for just a second, imagine living in the Middle East <clears throat> or in China uh, where you could be killed just for worshiping Jesus. We just had a guest preacher three or four weeks ago who, being a missionary in China, had to abandon everything he owned, does not have a single possession of what he had because they kicked him out of the country. It's, it's serious. They lost everything they had. We can jump on social media every day now and see Christians being persecuted all over the world. Even this morning in our Operation Christmas Child video, the main thing that it was talking about was we're taking these boxes into areas of the world where Christianity isn't even accepted and that people are being persecuted just for talking about Jesus and when I say persecuted, I don't mean like they're just getting called names. <clears throat> I'm talking about real persecution where, where it's, it's, it's serious. And, and I say all this to say that here in, the, here in the States, I think we take our religious liberty uh, for granted. We need to be thankful to God that we live in a place where we can meet tonight and, and talk about God. We can pray to God. We can sing songs without any threat, basically, that we will be persecuted or, or harmed. And this truly is a blessing from God. If you all are familiar with David Platt, he even does this thing at his church called Secret Church, which is a, is a neat thing. It's an all-night event where people from, uh, from the church kind of sneak into the building, and they have their backpack and, you know, maybe a bottle of water, but they have their Bible. They, they try to dim the lights to use, like, less electricity. I don't even think they sit in the pews. I think they sit on the ground. Uh, so it's kind of a fun event, and the whole thing is, is, is David Platt and all the other pastors teach all night long. Um, but it's a fun event, and it's safe. But, but what it replicates is pretty serious. <clears throat> if you think about it, there are people all over the world right now who do have to sneak out in the middle of the night uh, when everybody else is asleep. They have to try to find the house that they're meeting at, sneak into it so that nobody sees them, uh, because then they're not only endangering them, they're endangering everybody else that's meeting at that house. They have to go to the basement with flashlights and, and read the Bible together and study. And that is the only church they have. The only church they have is secret church. And you see people doing that regardless of the risk, no matter if they are going to get caught, you see people still so hungry after God that they are still going through all of that to get to that basement so that they can study God's word. And so let us not take our religious liberty for granted here, uh, here in the United States. And I want to challenge you with this, uh, and this is what I'm going to close with. What if our religious liberty was taken away? <clears throat> what do we do then? Do we keep worshiping God? Um, do we keep hitting our, hitting our knees in prayer? Do we keep reading and studying scripture together? Do we keep meeting as a church? 
and this is where it gets really serious, do we keep evangelizing? Do we keep telling other people about those good news? What if the person you're talking to is an undercover policeman who is, his job is to find Christians and bring them in? So do we keep evangelizing and telling people about the good news? And in the very same chapter where Paul says we are citizens of heaven, he also writes, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. You bet Nathan McBroom right now with his entire family is saying that verse. We count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Christ commands us to go to the ends of the earth. Jesus himself commands us to make disciples of all nations. Religious liberty or not, that's the mission. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. God, we want to look to it as our authority. We want not to take for granted our religious liberty in the United States, but ultimately our mission is to tell people about Jesus, and we live in a place where we can freely tell people about Jesus without serious persecution. And so, God, I pray that you would uh, give us uh, the boldness and the spirit that we need to, to be telling people about Jesus so that they would be believing in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. We want to be people that know in our hearts that uh, we count everything as loss for the, for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. God, I thank you that you have saved us, and we can, we can say that, and we can know that, and we trust that. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.